this is underlying the need for local resource production, really autonomous, self-sufficient cities, and then how the link between rural and urban areas are being accentuated. Because right now, some people are writing that rural areas are better off. In a sense, they have the food because they sustain their own community and they feed the city. But on the other end, the city is where the resources are, where the healthcare is. So there's a kind of mismatch between those two, and we need to strengthen the link between the rural side of the city and also review the global supply chain so that it's more resilient. Hi, Smart Community friends. Welcome back to the summer series here on the Smart Community Podcast. As you know, we're taking a little break from new content over the Australian summer holidays, and instead we are sharing the replays of a few of our all-time favourite episodes. This week we're sharing my interview with Zahir Alam, way back from episode 180, which was released in July of 2020. In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a great conversation with urban strategist Zahir Alam. You might remember I spoke with Zahir earlier in 2020 in episode 158, and when COVID-19 broke out, I knew that I wanted to catch up with him again. So this episode is an audio from the YouTube series I did catching up with previous podcast guests during the pandemic, and we recorded this chat on the 4th of May in 2020. In this conversation, Zahir tells us what the situation is like in Mauritius at the time of recording, what's changed, such as working from home, flexible work options in general, and the disruptions for Zahir personally. We cover a big range of things all along the themes of how COVID has impacted every industry and brought to the forefront a lot of smart concepts, such as the importance of data, digital literacy, community engagement, and cross-disciplinary approaches. Zahir tells us why systems thinking is so important in smart communities, always, but now especially as we move into the post-COVID world. We discuss the opportunities and challenges of transitioning to a digital economy, of localising supply chains, investing in resilient infrastructure, and the democratisation of data. We finish our chat discussing the ways smart cities and communities, including the 15-minute city concept, can help us build more sustainable, resilient, human-centred places to work, live and play. I also have an update from Zahir. He says he's been involved in research on smart cities and green new deals. He has also had a few papers published on those themes and is currently collaborating with the Sorbonne University in France on the theme of 15-minute cities. We'll be sure to get to hear back on the show in the future for a full update about what he's been up to and also how our thinking has progressed since this conversation. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Zahir. How are you going today? Hi, Zahir. Thanks for having, having me. I'm doing great. Thanks. And yourself? Yeah, pretty good. I'm so excited to have you and learn a bit more about how you're going in Mauritius. So first of all, for people that don't know who you are, tell us who you are and what you do and where you're based. 
Uh, I'm an urban strategist. I'm based in Mauritius, and right now I'm based from home. I think like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. So tell us what's happening in Mauritius specifically. Like, are you guys in lockdown like much of the rest of the world? Yeah, I think uh, we actually started lockdown uh, earlier than Australia. I think it's been 45 days we've been under lockdown. Okay. And this is going to be to be extended until the first of June. The first of June. Okay. Wow. So still another month. Yeah. yeah, it's very long. And our lockdown was kind of different as well because it just started like no, I'll say no prior announcement, just immediate lockdown. And uh, after a week or so, it went in the full lockdown, which meant also supermarkets were closed without prior announcement as well. So it's like it was chaos over the country. Nobody knew how to feed themselves and so on. But interestingly, while this was happening, we saw the emergence of smaller businesses starting doing online deliveries. So it was kind of interesting as well, seeing an immediate competition with large uh, supermarket, hypermarkets from small businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So what are the main things that you see, like, what are the main things that have changed significantly? The work from home is pretty new in Mauritius because in terms of scale, we are a tiny island. It's like you take from the north to the south, it's only like 51 hour drive. And um, so, yeah, the, the work from home is pretty much changed. And we are also introducing a COVID-19 bill, which apparently will have components of work from home uh, more laid out. So this will pretty much change the future of work after COVID as well, because we'll, we'll have the bill as legacy from, from this. And in terms of work structure as well, because businesses are impacted, like for the construction, the architectural uh, sectors, this pretty much changes because we don't, they don't probably need the staff for 24, uh, eight hours a day anymore. So we are bring, being brought on more flexible contracts, which allows us to do other jobs as well. So this is changing the industry pretty much and abruptly. Mm-hmm. What are some of the biggest disruptions for you? I'm finding myself working more, actually. And uh, I'm writing a lot at the moment. I started a book I'm just finishing this week. I'm doing a series of articles with Art Daily, I don't know if you noticed, on the future of architecture and cities post-virus. And um, I'm doing a few research articles as well on the impact of COVID on cities and, and urban planning. So it's like most of my research energy has been poured immediately on this. And I'm producing actually more than ever because I think I feel the urgency of the situation to contribute. And I don't, I don't know, for me, I, I can't stay idle. And the COVID-19 brought lots of idle time uh, during this lockdown. So I'm just channeling my energy into this. Mm. Have you got any kind of early findings from your research? Uh, I'm doing many perspective and opinion articles, but interestingly, I've been writing a lot on data protocols and uh, how increased sharing could lead towards more enhanced uh, big data sets. And then from big data sets, we can have, uh, uh, how in-depth findings, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning could, algorithms could use those larger data sets to produce better decisions. This was published, uh, this particular research article was published in February. And interestingly, later, like a few weeks later, then Apple and uh, Google announced a partnership on sharing mm. their mobile platforms to share data. So it was quite interesting. Yeah, now that is really interesting. And I think like we're going to see a lot of changes across the board, particularly like 
I've been talking to a lot of people around changes for humans, like as in remote working and all those type of things. But you've got me thinking more about now the systems and the protocols behind what's happening that most people, unless we're working in this space, won't actually know that that's changed necessarily. They hopefully will just see or depending on what area they're working in, obviously, but they'll see the impact of those, which hopefully are better decisions based on, you know, data and that type of thing. And then using technology, advanced technology to help us make decisions. It'll be really interesting. There's also the aspect of, uh, it's like a whole new system thinking for us. For, mm. uh, I'm currently writing an article on universities at the moment, how it will change universities. And uh, interestingly, when we look at universities, there's a whole lot of infrastructure, parking spaces, departments, lots of buildings, labs, and so on. It's like investing piles of cash into a rich real estate portfolio, which then students can find attractive to invest into certain product offerings from that university. But now all of a sudden universities are closed around the world and uh, universities which are uh, sustaining heavily from a foreign student base, they are they don't really know what's the future of this university and how long this will extend. Suddenly, smaller universities which adopted online learning are now better off than larger universities which are trying to, uh, I would say, protect their reputation by mm. being a more traditional university. So we're seeing kind of interesting competition emerging as well from those traditional brick and mortar universities, which is very, very interesting. Mm, Yeah, I've been thinking, I haven't done research, but I've been thinking about this, so we should have a bit of a chat later. So the university I'm at at the moment, USQ, which is in Toowoomba here. So I'm doing a master's of data science. And the course, I was on campus technically, but it was already offered as an online course. So the on-campus students got exactly, or got the on-campus, but also online basis. So it was quite easy. You know, if you couldn't make it to the class, it was all there and available. And I can't remember the exact percentages, but USQ has, I think, 70% or something of online students, you know, before, and most of them were mature age. So there was a much different demographic to, say, some of the prestigious universities around the world. And, you know, it was actually seen, you know, I guess from a university and prestige perspective that it wasn't as prestigious because of the demographics and, you know, the fact that they had so many online students but also they have, yeah, they actually have students from all around the world and also regionally based as well. But anyway, that prestigious thing didn't really bother me much and it was it's in my hometown. But now they are actually, and obviously there's, you know, early um, talk about that they now will be okay and are actually haven't suffered as much as some of the other larger universities because it was quite easy for them to switch onto online. Obviously there's, you know, practical components, not in my course, but say for nursing and um, physiotherapy mm-hmm. and those type of things. And even ag um, was a bit, you know, obviously there'll be some changes and stuff there. And also I, I think that the international student intake is high, but not like the majority of yeah. their business or anything. Don't quote me on these things. I've just kind of read some articles and that type of thing. But yeah, it's, so I found it really interesting that sudden switch and the dynamic and then how they will be able to hopefully thrive moving on from this because like you said we don't know how long this will go on for and yeah so really interesting and they've still got a huge campus obviously as well 
in Toowoomba and then some satellite ones. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with that as well moving yeah. forward. The switch from online is uh, tricky as well from a sort of administrative perspective. From the side of, let's say, architecture and urban planning, where you have studio components, where you have to be there and working with your teammates in studios doing models or doing design. Because usually those, uh, uh, i say, professional accreditation bodies would have this as a, of a, as a requirement for giving accreditation to the university. And if they shift to online, then this disrupts this sort of traditional process as well. Yeah. But in the urgent times that we are, where universities are forced to switch online, um, the question is now, are those professional accreditation bodies following through the same trend to allow this sort of, of online transition? So this is all kind of very interesting for the future of the university as well. Mm, yeah, that's so true. And that will be really um, an interesting space to watch as well. And I'm even thinking, you know, now for assessments and those type of things, mm-hmm. like we've had a lot of online, you know, quizzes and that type of stuff. But the exam, particularly for like my statistics course, was closed book, one page of notes, you know, exams, go into a room, do the exam. Whereas now they've had to switch that and it's online and open book because it's hard to stop. And I don't know how you get around that, actually. Um, I don't know yeah. how you – and I've been thinking about – there must be a way that we do that. Maybe they give us a device. I don't know. But even then, yeah, really some things need to be sorted out and how you do that yeah. and, and how you have questions where Google's not going to help you and those type of things. It will be really interesting. I uh, think uh, aspects of subjects as well would be quite interesting to, uh, to observe because mm-hmm. demand for some subjects will increase and uh, others will decline. So, for example, let's say for your case, there could be, will universities be ready to offer, I don't know, master's in data science and epidemiology, for example? Mm, yeah. Something mm. already put together before, but certainly there's an interesting rise in demand for that. And we will see most probably the emergence, the, let's say, popularity of joint degrees as well, because people understand that everything is interconnected, economics and urban planning and I don't know. And, um, yeah, we'll... How far will universities be flexible in this approach? I think we'll um, really get them make or break, I can say. Mm, yeah, and like I guess going back to your systems approach, will we see more integrated degrees in the future where, yeah, you're bringing two things together like you just said and that's really the what smart cities and smart communities are, are built on, right, that multidisciplinary approach and rather than just having, you know, okay, well, I'm a... I'm a planner, so I do only planning. Can I actually, instead of doing like you, five or six degrees, I don't know how many degrees you have, not everyone can um, dedicate their lives to it. Can we do, yeah, a a combination where you're a um, smart city planner or whatever um, the case may be? And very important, like you say, city, because the city, for for me, the definition of a city is the foundation of everything. It has a service of transport, health, economics, what um, like different multifaceted and layered dimensions and for you to be really able to understand and to design something that's properly and contextually appropriate you need to have some basic understanding of those dimensions and how they relate within each other so if we do let's say a 10 phds on the i don't know real estate economics it only remains this and we don't really know how the block of land interacts which with each other, what's the demand of energy, let's say, on the whole block and, and how it relates in, into designing a sustainable resilient system. 
So this kind of interdisciplinary thinking and um, innovation across domains is very, very important. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, some might say, well, you know, you get that when you go to work, but can we fast track that in our education and that type of thing? Yeah, it would be an interesting concept to kind of consider. And then I think before COVID, we probably didn't think too much about how how everything interacted day to day because we just took everything for granted, I suppose, like what was just happening. Whereas now when one thing has shut down, not one thing, but, you know, something has happened, then you see that multiplier effect, which in this case is a negative multiplier effect, and hopefully when we, like for a smart city and a smart community, is supposed to be a positive multiplier effect and we've just seen the opposite of that, which, yeah, it's got me thinking differently and, like, I, you know, was always thinking about this systems, you know, kind of thinking, but now, you know, we've got a real-life example. You don't have to talk in theory anymore. Like, if this happens, then human behaviour changes and whatever. So, yeah, really. I think one aspect which is interesting as well from the architecture and planning side is, Usually, let's say your staff has all the competence and um, knowledge to design a better system. Your main uh, say obstacle, barrier, is usually the developer because they think they know you give me 40 luxury villas, I'll be able to sell them. I'll make my money and, and I'm, I'm okay. And you can try as hard as you can to let, uh, reason with them that this is not, uh, you can do better. And for them, it's like they've always done like this. They know how to do it. They have the current base ready. They don't need to do any extra effort and they will sell it. At the end of the day, the cash flow is important. But in this case, what's interesting is this virus impacted everybody severely. And the developers now will be forced to look into alternative measures and probably more sustainable measures, more resilient measures, because one, they have less money. And second, uh, they also realize that they have to diversify their portfolio. So this will again reduce the amount of money they can invest into projects and get the most out, really the most out, out of it, while also having a sense of supporting the community as much as they can to transition out of this virus. So now we'll only not be personally, professionally motivated, but we'll be forced by the client through the development brief to redesign something completely new. And how much we can innovate, I think, will uh, differentiate practice to practice on this. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I've been even thinking about, you know, some of my contracts or contracts we were just about to put in. Now they have, and this is on a very small level, I guess some of them are bigger projects, but having clauses in there to cope or deal with, you know, the COVID-19, but actually those clauses won't go away. They'll be, you know generalized but actually now we've got our eyes have been opened to this thing that we didn't realize was a risk a huge risk but it was probably you know on the you know it's on the catastrophic level but it's you know a rare occurrence but now it's going to creep up there and so we're going to have different clauses and things and that's going to be on a global scale with different projects and different contexts and all those type of things but the impacts are going to be so widespread we won't one individual person won't even one individual country won't know all of them so yeah really interesting times as we move forward out of this the aspect that legislation like you were saying for your contract laws is very interesting because we're seeing usually you know uh, technology moves at one speed and legislation usually very uh, is very low 
<laughs> yeah, it never follows at the same at the same speed. But now we've been seeing legislation pass at such a fast speed yeah. in different countries around the world. Most of them are turning up like in Mauritius, who are doing a COVID bill. Different places uh, place around the world are doing the same thing. And it's just incredible. Like we are seeing a disruption in just three months at a speed that we've never seen before. And it will be very, very exciting. Well, we've been talking about data. For example, um, we've been seeing corporations and, and even governments turn towards data sharing as a sort of ultimate measure to contain the spread of the virus through technology. And we've been seeing data, protect, data sharing standards. But then the question now starts, what happens to this data post-COVID? Because the bill is already there, the legislation, the frameworks are already there. And it, like now we're doing it, for example, for a sense of community safeguarding, let's say. But after the crisis is over, then we'll turn back to look at our privacy. And then what happens is data. Mm-hmm. So will the legislation change as much as it did with the virus? So lots of questions as well, but very exciting, actually. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. And I think you've written some stuff on this on LinkedIn, haven't you? Yeah, yeah I think I read, read some stuff. But in terms of, I guess, moving quickly, it, it, what it's shown to me is that when we want to get something done when we want when we focus on it because we have to and again COVID didn't make us do that the impacts around COVID made us do that and you know governments around the world had to decide how they responded to COVID so that is a really important distinction I think because when we we see it as so important that we have to respond exponential things can happen so and obviously, you know, we all needed to respond at this in this time, but actually we can do the same thing with other things that if we think they are that important, then we can, you know, this has shown that we can respond at an exponential rate. And the things that are in place are barriers that can be, you know, removed, shortened, whatever, where is necessary. But going to your point around, you know, we're getting, doing all this data and then maybe we'll look back on privacy. We need to then think about if we are moving this quickly, what are those consequences and can we mitigate some of those right now? Or is it, yeah, what do we need to mitigate right now? Can we lessen the impact? Who is it going to affect? Those type of things. Even if, you know, we're still making those decisions because we're in an emergency situation, but we really need to take note of what those things are. So then, you know, when we, when we come out the other side, and, but we still want to, make decisions quickly that we actually are thinking about the people that are most impacted and I think in a lot of most cases people that are most impacted are normally the ones that are already impacted the ones with the most at stake and I think that's a consideration that we need to have front of mind when we are you know moving so quickly. Yeah your argument of uh, I mean the point that you raise on we felt that it was an emergency situation and then we acted it's quite interesting because uh, lots of people are saying climate change has always been there, but why didn't we see any urgent action on this front? And for me, I feel it's like we can use this momentum, this COVID momentum, to try to push numerous changes which that we have that we know are important for us, because the speed of legislation is passing, and the impact of those legislation and those mechanisms being implemented will have for sure a impact for decades, for years, with some decades to come. For example, we're talking about climate change. We, the IMF warns, warns we are turning towards a steep recession. And when we look at past trends, recessions usually call for a spike in, even though we are, 
one of the things that carbon emissions are decreasing at the moment. With previous studies, we see that after recessions, emissions climb up because governments are bailing out large and heavy industries, fossil fuel emitting industries. So when governments are turning towards uh, fiscal mechanisms, bailout prog- programs, you can already convince those entities, policymakers, that when they craft those legislations, either for climate change or for data, to look at the immediate solution, the short term, the middle and the long term problems as well. So those can already be, I'd say, formulated in the, in the policy mechanism in the first place, rather than only linearly thinking on the immediate term and then have large repercussions at, at the end. Mm, I agree. And it's something we really need to consider. And I think on your point around data and privacy, what it has also shown to me is that, how do I say, basically that if we need, there's like a really fine balance. And I was talking to a guy from um, Denmark, Peter, the other day, and there's a really fine balance between the data that we want to be able to stop to spread the virus and then the data that, you know, is crossing the line of privacy and are we willing to give that up for a short period of time? But then, like you said, what happens to that data afterwards? And I think because we aren't literate enough to un- understand globally, we're not understanding what that data actually means. Like, what does it mean that somebody can track my location right now? And what does it mean if I say yes to that? What does it mean? Is the mechanism, can I trust the mechanism you know, that says it will be deleted after. And I think that's where in times of emergency we follow blindly, potentially, but then in times of of good and abundance, we are much more reserved and or conservative, not conservative, um, but just, you know, it's not affecting us right now. So we don't think about it as much, I suppose, which is kind of saying the same thing, but I feel like we are more likely to opt into something in time of emergency without understanding the full repercussions and then we're more likely to opt out when, you know, oh, well, it doesn't matter, you know, whatever. But on the flip side of that, that if we want to make good data-driven decisions from a planning and a government level, we want people to opt in but we need to be able to explain what it is they're exchanging for their data, that data value. And I think there will be a really interesting piece after this of, you know, all the data that was collected, what does it mean? Now that we know we can collect that data, what else can we do with it but in a way that's, you know, secure and private and all those type of things. So, yeah, I don't know what I actually said there but really interesting to think about all this complexity with data which I think, you know, we're thinking about data now but there's so much data available pre-COVID but hopefully what it will do is bring data to the forefront again so then we can actually start having more informed conversations about it. I think what's also interesting for me is um, when we look at, for example, smart cities, we know those, let's say you have 10 different operators and those corporations are managing data between themselves. And then because of the heavy data sharing legislations between corporations, this actually slows their, let's say, pro- competitive advantage of proprietary. Yeah, well, yeah, processing of this data as well, either to as a competitive advantage or to solve a particular immediate issue. What we are seeing right now is people are voluntarily, like you mentioned, sharing the data. And actually, when we talk about the platform that um, Apple and Google was uh, preparing, it's just actually a platform where data can ride on. They didn't actually share the, their data through the operating system because they won't be allowed to do this. 
So they only provided the underlying foundation and people are uh, developers are putting apps and people are voluntarily sharing the data for those for those apps as well. So it's kind of interesting where we're seeing voluntary individual data sharing bypassing the, let's say, previous competitive advantage of corporations, which was they themselves are sericulting, gathering the data of everybody. So we are seeing kind of a sort of democratization of the data landscape at the moment. And this is quite interesting. It's like citizen science in a way. Where we're seeing that they need to do that and we're doing it in, uh, on our end and we're seeing the emergence of smaller businesses coming up with different apps which are riding on those foundational structures laid by those corporations. Mm. Yeah, it is really interesting. And it's also, you know, that consent model as well, like, you know, where people are opting in rather than someone else choosing, you know, what data they're selling to somebody else or whatever, where it's that, yeah, that citizen kind of awareness going, okay, well, I need to, I'm, I'm going to share my data because I know it will help whatever. Yeah, really, really interesting. And it will be interesting to see what continues because, you know, we talk about like the cases being made for COVID that it's, you know, emergency and stuff's happening or whatever. But yeah, there's are, there are many other cases that could be made that we could then enforce, not enforce necessarily. I mean, you could enforce, but then could make the uh, direct that same outcome, I suppose. Mm. The aspect of economics as well is very important, I think, for smart cities because usually there's unfortunately a sort of luxurious brand to smart city because it's high tech and those product offerings are more expensive. But in a time of post COVID, where last week 30 million Americans filed for unemployment, it reached the bar of 30 million, and around the world, people are losing jobs. It's like we need to really tackle the issue of affordability, housing affordability, because else small cities will only be a tool to further the economic inequality of families and communities around the world. Mm. So this will be really important of how to use techn- leverage technology on bringing costs down and most even, if possible, change the entire ecosystem. For example, do we need to own a house or do we need just to look at the house as a company asset where you buy shares in the company to get access to, to the unit or you need the physical ownership? I think lots of lots of things will change and technology can help into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really interesting. And I think I've been thinking a lot about, you know, this basically, you know, work from home experiment, global work from home experiment, and, you know, that it's worked uh, in a lot of cases. And again, you know, I haven't spoken to every single person, but... And it'll be really interesting to see the research come out after this as to who thought it worked, who thought it didn't, what were the productivity. I mean, obviously, it's quite difficult because obviously you have got so many different factors with health and mental health and, you know, decreasing cash flows and all those type of things as well. It'd be really interesting. But just that we were, I guess, with face-to-face interactions, you know, non-existent in most countries. Stepping into the digital environment and making that normal, the way that that has changed, even the way I am processing the digital environment, which, you know, I'm very used to being in, but it's risen the bar. It's like pulled up the bar on digital and I've, what's the word? Like I'm experiencing it as if it was real life and it's like this normal thing. It's normal now to go to a webinar in America because, you know, I just sit, I'm in the same spot. 
Whereas before, even if I might have done that, it wasn't seen, it wasn't normal in my head, so I wouldn't value it as much or it wouldn't be like as real or something like that. I can't quite work out and I've got to write some stuff around this, so keen to your thoughts. But yeah, um, and for other people that weren't in the digital environment, it's been a huge learning curve for them as well. And so what this has done is really risen that bar on digital it was always seen as kind of less than, you know, face-to-face was always king and nothing can replace that is words that I've heard, whereas now it has had to. And I don't think that we should replace face-to-face totally, but it's really shown that we can build digital relationships, professional relationships. We can build trust digitally where it has been necessary to do so. And I think that will really open up opportunities for people that didn't have them before purely because of where they lived or what their circumstances were. But only if they have the digital literacy, they have the connectivity, they understand what the data means when they hand that over and they're not negatively you know, impacted or whatever, or understand what the impacts are. So I think it's really brought the smart community concept to the forefront for me. So keen to your thoughts. Yeah, I think on the financial landscape as well, this represents the, your points you're raising quite well because what we're seeing, companies are rushing left, right and centre, except technology, some key technology companies where uh, people who've been investing in there are suddenly seeing a, a boost in uh, share value. Zoom, for example, since the start of the COVID-19, I think got a sh- share price of 1,500% increase. That's incredible. But uh, interestingly as well, uh, we wonder, we know like now we've been seeing the technological backbone scheme sustaining our society today. But I was just, I'm collaborating right now with uh, a friend from Cameroon in Africa for the Org Daily series. And last week, uh, we communicate through emails, uh, through WhatsApp and uh, some other occasional video conference. But last week for the, in Cameroon, for the whole week, there was no electricity. And then we wonder what about those less developing economies, you know, uh, before they reach this technological adoption, they need some kind of basic amenities set up in stable, reliable electricity, water, and so on. So this is kind of a question, I mean, an important question where we need, African countries need to ask and solve at, at the moment right now. We often say that Africa is often leapfrogging. They were the first in the world to to adopt um, I'd say digital currencies and PESA in Kenya, but often the underlying infrastructure is coming to terms. So big, heavy investment is required at the moment to help them to transition towards this digital economy. But the challenge right now with COVID is we're seeing loads of investment being redirected from existing projects, existing infrastructure projects towards a health system at the moment. And uh, we saw three weeks ago, in, uh, finance ministers called for, a aid, for an aid of 100 billion USD to the, uh, to the World Bank and the IMF. This adds to the existing 350 billion. So this was a debt of an incredible magnitude. And this wasn't even enough because they were redirecting money from everywhere just to address the short-term immediate crisis. But then at the, at the end of this, when we see a clear endpoint, what will happen is this will create a debt of an incredible magnitude and the continent will be requiring immediate additional cash injections, not only to repair the damage on the social and economic front, but also in the infrastructure cost, because they have the mo- at this point, digital progress will be really low. Uh, esports, for example, infrastructures, money that was channeling from those uh, will be inexistent. 
So then there's actually a big discussion that will need to happen on the whole sustainability of this ecosystem of centralized uh, money flows towards an immediate problem. And it joins your point where ultimately at the end we'll have, let's say, a big round table to discuss resiliency because were we really resilient post this crisis, prior to this crisis? Mm. Yeah, and I think we'll see that on like a really kind of, I guess, micro level and a macro level where, and I don't know if they're the right terms in economic speak, but, you know, really small businesses will have to really take a look at themselves and and go, was this just the straw that broke the camel's back or were we sustainable and then, you know, this is unprecedented or whatever. But then, yeah, on a government, a global level, we're going to have to have a lot of these same conversations. So, you know, I think we really need to step back and actually have some of those. Hopefully we can and we don't just go, okay, now we're out, let's just go back to BAU and let's just go back to the status quo and we'll just continue to do what we're doing uh, when actually we, you know, there's a lot of places, businesses, people, whatever, were already in crisis in their own insular way. But now that it's a global issue that we then really need to take a serious look at, not just the global issue, but then for ourselves as well and for our communities, what do we want to look like in the future? You know, what do we want our futures to look like for our communities so then we can actually make real change? Yeah, interestingly, on your point of small businesses, uh, I was reading a survey just uh, last week on um, based on data from the US and the UK, mm-hmm. where 50% of small businesses are expected to go bankrupt or will have severe long-term economic consequences yeah. for the next few years. And this is quite challenging. But then how can uh, businesses which don't have money invest into transitional, uh, transitional approaches to sustain the livability? Very difficult question. And also, we see that governments are trying their best to invest, uh, to bail out those small businesses, but then large corporations are tapping in to siphon the money out. We saw the cases just two weeks ago in the US where the government, through the government's, I forgot what's the program called, stimulus package of the US. Yeah. Uh, pardon? I can't remember the exact name. Yeah, where they invested billions of dollars, but it was the fund was empty in a, in a few in a matter of a few days where so many companies were applying, but you also saw major corporations. For example, one of the cases was Shake Shack, a fast food, a giant fast food chain with over six thousand employees applying for a ten million loan, where they obviously didn't need the money, and they, in the end they returned the, the money for this. But then, what happens to those small businesses which needed that money? Lots of questions are rising on this, and if small businesses lose. Uh, or go bankrupt, what happens on the city scale? Where usually we say city uh, gains in complexity and intricacy for the diversity of the business offerings. If we see 50 small businesses close, will this see the emergence of two major corporations that takes the 25 space on the whole city block? So this, we need to follow urban planning legislation as well as with those economic policies and programs because this impacts on the liability and the richness of the urban fabric at the end. Mm. Yeah, and that's such an, again, back to your systems thinking, like that is such an important point that we need to consider that has that has nothing to do with necessarily the COVID-19, but it's an impact of that may go under the rug if we don't have planners, if we don't have people thinking about 
that and also them in the room when these decisions are being made of how we move forward because it's yeah it's not just okay we've got health we've got economics we've got even small business advocates you actually need then the city and the urban fabric like you said you need those considerations because otherwise they may and and not by anyone's fault or whatever it's that they'll just get missed because they haven't been thought about and there'll be so many particularly in regional areas so important that we need to yeah that we have that multidisciplinary approach so we can make sure we make these decisions that will you know and like you said decisions we make now are going to affect not just now and next year it'll be generations potentially so yeah heavy stuff i'm also uh, reading a lot on supply chains at the moment because interestingly we've been seeing how the impacts of supply chains are disrupting economies globally Mm. first it started with china with the lockdown there and the closure of the factories which is the manufacturing capital of the world but then it sustained when other parts, when China was opening, other parts of the world were closing. So this disruption sustained over a long amount of time where even other competing economies that were trying to bridge the gap couldn't get into the supply chain. So now we're seeing uh, different parts of the, of the world missing on equipment, on health equipment or food as well, and uh, how this is underlying the need for local resource production, really autonomous self-sufficient cities. In the end, and how the link between rural and urban areas are being accentuated. Because some uh, right now, some, uh, people are writing that rural areas are better off. In a sense, they have the food because they sustain their own community and they feed the city. But on the other end, the city is where the resources are, where the healthcare is. So there's a kind of mismatch between those two, and we need to strengthen the link between the rural side of the city and also. Uh, review the, the global supply chain so that it's more resilient. Mm, yeah, that's such an important point. So, yeah, again, one another interesting complex web. And then also going back to, like, the consumer, actually thinking about where our stuff comes from is another thing that, you know, we'll add to the list of things to think about because, yeah, I, I think that will be really interesting. And I've always um, been, like, think, thought about how, you know, we set up hubs that, do a certain thing and then no one else does it because it's all in that hub and that yeah it it does really and it's all well and good when everything's going well and whatever else but if those hubs I think can be and I'm talking more you know these innovation hubs that maybe are focused on mining or manufacturing or whatever but yeah as soon as that is cut off then there's yeah the supply chains out the window and the decentralized approach which is actually quite, uh, I guess it depends what you're talking about, the, but decentralisation is, is frowned upon in kind of urban planning sense, but what aspects can we use to uh, strengthen our ecosystems and our resiliency of specific, I guess, communities and supply chains and that type of thing. Mm. Yeah, there's an interesting concept uh, emerging in France at the moment through the election of um, an Hidalgo where there's an urban thinker called Carlos Moreno. He's promoting a 50, what he calls a 15-minute city. For him, you need to have access to your basic services in a circle of 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And the mayor, Anne Hidalgo, is the current mayor of Paris and re-running for election. And that's one of the key programs as well, sustaining the 15-minute city. So it kind of rejoins the idea of self-sustenance and kind of, let's say, small decentralization, where you have nodes, centralized mm-hmm. nodes, Parts of the instead of like a massive, you know, mega mega factory, it's more like a sort of 
resilient series of interconnected resilient systems. Mm. Yeah, the super block in like Spain is, I always found that a really interesting concept. And yeah, when I was on my Churchill Fellowship, I, you know, called it out as one of, it's a, it's a, it is a smart initiative because it's about that smart decentralization. And for Australia, I feel like it's more palatable than some of the other density conversations, particularly in regional areas, I'm thinking, because it makes more sense. It's not about, I mean, it is making things more dense, obviously, but you could actually take a lot of those good concepts and then put them into regional areas to actually then start having those conversations. Because I think that if you go too far ahead in some of the regional areas, then you completely get lost and you don't get anywhere. Whereas if you kind of do that incremental change and, and kind of can show that things can work, you know, particularly with cycling, walking, and then it's a smart, sensible decentralizing of services that you need, then you can kind of have a better conversation of, well, now you don't have to use your car as much. Whereas if you go yeah. straight to give up your keys, people will run you out of town. So yeah, anyway. Interesting. Yeah, but you have a very good point on saying that we shouldn't go too far into regional areas because then we'll be encouraging sprawl. And interestingly, two weeks uh, ago, there was a controversial open ed in Los Angeles Times where one person was writing and praising sprawl, saying that looking at data, uh, it looks like the spread of COVID-19 is less in sprawl as opposed to in densified areas. And people are now, I see you rolling your eyes with reason. And uh, people are now writing against, against that, mm. where they're saying that you know, the data is wrong. And um, so that's why the import, that we need a multidisciplinary team where we have urban planners together with scientists, with economics, economists working out the reason of the need to densify those urban areas and to, to create more resilient systems and not only you know, go mm. into all different directions and allowing cities to sprawl out of control. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been so great to chat with you, Zahir. I have to run because I have to go to another meeting. Um, but thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. It's great to hear, I guess, about what you're up to. But yeah, just uh, I remember, you know, our podcast, I can't remember when that was originally. And I remember having such a great conversation there. So yeah, this has been awesome. So thank you for coming on. Thanks very much, Zahir. Thanks for having me. And we'll have to have another conversation soon get a bit of an update maybe after your lockdown comes out or, you know, your restrictions decrease. We're seeing some decreases at the moment in our restrictions. So it'll be interesting to see what the next phase looks like. Hopefully we'll have you in Mauritius when this happens. Yeah, that would be cool. Okay. I will say goodbye and it was really great to talk to you and we'll talk again soon. All right, cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks for here. Bye. Are you looking for an engaging speaker, MC, or facilitator for your next big event? Then we've got you covered. Zoe is a go-to speaker, MC, and conversation facilitator with a difference. She's a master at simplifying the complex and making connections you might never see. Book Zoe for your next event. Email hello at mysmart.community or head over to her speaker page, www.mysmart.community forward slash speaking. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.com.
community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at smartcomhq. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.